Hey, everybody. This is the sermon that I gave at our first live gathering this past Sunday. We started off our time by having people share some of the things that have been lost or forgotten or postponed over the last three years that have gone on between the time that we last met on our back patio and meeting in our new location this past Sunday. This was as a prelude to our topic for the night, which was the good news. Because the good news is good news because of how it speaks to some of the very things that people named when we were together. And so naming those things first was kind of a necessary preamble to the sermon. In the Bible, the word gospel is the Greek word euangelion, which is where we get evangelical and evangelism. I'm not sure the linguistic reasons that the U in Greek became a V in English, but either way, the word literally means good news. The U is good, the angelos or angelion is a message or news. And if you've been around the evangelical church much, as I know many of us have, then you've probably heard the gospel explained more or less like this. We are sinners who deserve to die and be separated from God forever because of our personal wrongdoing, our sins. But Jesus took our sins upon himself and died in our place so that if we believe in Jesus, we will get to go to heaven when we die instead of going to hell. Good news. Except, as many of us know, in order to get to the good part of that news, we have to convince most people that they are miserable sinners who deserve death. Which is not an easy sell for the most part. The reality is, for many people, and it seems like this is more and more the case with each passing year, that message doesn't sound like good news. We're talking to people who have just come through the same three years as we have, and trying to tell them that message as if it were good news just feels kind of tone deaf in such a context. At best, it's irrelevant to the actual experience of life that most people have had, at best. So, wait, they might say, the whole world is a disaster, injustice is everywhere, corruption and cynicism are rampant, systemic problems seem to fill the newspaper every day with no hope to fix them, we're three years into a pandemic, and you want me to feel happy that my mistakes aren't going to keep me out of heaven? Fortunately, the Bible talks about the good news in starkly different ways than that formulation. There isn't one example in the Bible of what the good news is. There are many explanations and images. And some of the ways the Bible talks about the good news are ways that might actually be good to the world we live in and the people we care about, the ones who have faced the same loss and anxiety over the past few years that we have. Preaching the gospel doesn't mean telling the same old story that I outlined a minute ago. Preaching the gospel is telling people the good news, that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that that reality changes everything. We've touched on this idea many times over the years, <laughs> which I'm very gratified. We can say over the years that we've been together at this point, I think three years is enough for that. But we've touched on this idea many times over the years. But as we begin this new season as a community, it's always good to remind ourselves of the gospel that animates who we are. Here's how Paul talks about the good news. This is from the very beginning of Romans chapter one. Paul a slave of King Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for God's good news, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the sacred writings. The good news about his son, who was descended from David's seed in terms of the flesh, and who was marked out powerfully as God's son in terms of the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Jesus the King, our Lord. So there's a few things to notice about what Paul considers the good news. The first thing is that this good news was promised through the prophets. Well, what good news do we find when we turn to the prophets? We find things like this from Isaiah 52. This is verses 6 and 7. 
Therefore, Yahweh says, my people shall know my name. On that day, they shall know that it is I who speaks. It is I. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, I could give other examples from the prophets, but the consistent thing in each of them is that when they speak of the good news, it is not some abstract idea of us going to heaven. It is concerned with God's self coming to be with God's people, that God finally, at long last, will be in charge. God reigns. So that's the first part of Paul's gospel, that God's promises are coming true. God is fixing all that is broken. Second, this good news is about Jesus, who is both God's son and the son of David. These are also referring back to Old Testament expectations of when and how God was going to fix what was broken. Passages like the one in Isaiah looked forward to a king who would come and be God's agent in putting the world right again. That king was called the Messiah, and they would be, you may have guessed it, in some sense, both David's son and God's son. So the second part of the gospel for Paul is that that promised Messiah has arrived. And with him, the new age that God had promised, that God had promised would come when the Messiah arrived, that it has, in fact, come. Third, this Messiah came in a way that wasn't quite what people had expected. Specifically, this so-called Messiah had, you know, already been crucified by Rome. As the scholar N.T. Wright puts it, any first century Jew would know that a crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah. There's no such thing as a dead king reigning, after all. Which is why the second part of Paul's summary of the good news is so important. Jesus was marked out powerfully as God's son by the resurrection. By raising Jesus from the dead, God has confirmed that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, despite appearances to the contrary. Again, to quote Wright, the resurrection reversed the verdict any first century Jew would have passed on Jesus after seeing him be crucified. He is, in fact, the Messiah after all. And this is the announcement that Paul refers to as the gospel. Good news, God's promises are coming true because Jesus, the Messiah, was raised from the dead. The time when God would reign and would put the earth back together again, would end in justice and fill the earth with their presence and their goodness and peace, it's here. Jesus' resurrection confirms the fact. Now, if that is the gospel for Paul, to our ears, that might seem like a fairly abstract sort of good news. (laughs) After all, the old gospel story does have simplicity and concreteness going for it. Sinners in the hands of an angry God and all that. But as we read the New Testament, what we find is that the authors there were of the opinion that this gospel had very practical everyday applications to it. And with the rest of this sermon, what I want to do is remind us briefly of a few examples of those practical everyday applications. In Galatians, we get a letter that's written by Paul to a church in a region called Galatia. It's now it's central Turkey. And the setup for this letter, so far as we can piece together from what Paul has to say in it, is that a group had started teaching the Christians in Galatia that in order to be really good Christians, they needed to follow Jewish law meaning be circumcised, keep kosher, keep Sabbath, etc. And this is a big problem for Paul. And to address this problem, Paul tells a story in the letter about when Peter had stopped eating with Gentile Christians because of this same sort of thinking. So in Galatians 2.11, Paul says this, 
But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate, for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul says that Peter's actions, the concrete actions of whom he chooses to eat with, are not consistent with the truth of the gospel, the good news. What good news does he mean? It's not the good news that your sins are forgiven and you get to go to heaven when you die. They didn't stop eating because they thought the Gentiles were morally bad people who weren't going to heaven. They stopped because they were Gentiles and Jews are supposed to stay separate. They have forgotten the good news that now because of Jesus, Gentiles get to be a part of the family of God. Because if that's the case, then Gentiles get to pull up a chair at the family dinner table. Jesus's resurrection meant that the new age had come. And in that new age, this is what the prophets had said in the Old Testament, after all, all nations would be part of God's family. So what does that mean for us? Well, the good news to a world of isolation, fragmentation, and loneliness is that all who follow Jesus get to pull up a chair. All are welcome in this family, the family of God. Good news. And then there's more. One of the most common passages from the Old Testament that is used to point to who Jesus was and, and what Jesus was up to is one from Isaiah, another one from Isaiah, writing in a time when Israel's established reality had been turned upside down by the exile. Isaiah is looking forward to the time when the Messiah would come, and he says this in chapter 9 of Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us. A son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority will grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time onwards and forevermore. The consuming passion of Mighty Yahweh will do this. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in there of course. But what I want to focus on first is one image that keeps coming up in the passage, the image of peace. This light has come into a dark world and it consists of peace. The prince of peace whose authority will result in endless peace for all people. Now, there is a reference to war ending there. It's common for us to hear prince of peace and immediately associate it with an absence of violent conflict because that's what usually peace means in our culture. But it actually misses a good deal of what Isaiah is saying. Yes, of course, war will stop and peace will come in that sense. But peace, shalom in Hebrew, often points to, as John Golden Gay, my old professor at Fuller Seminary writes, a richer notion of fullness of life, 
well-being, prosperity. It suggests that everything is going well for you. That is the peace Isaiah is speaking of and that the Messiah will bring. When God's will gets done, it will result in a society marked by well-being for all. Maybe especially for the poor and vulnerable, because let's face it, they are the ones for whom things stop going well first, most easily, most pervasively. We've lived through a world turned upside down these past few years. And how is Jesus good news when the world is upside down? Because he is our peace, our shalom, our fullness of life and well-being. And then as Jesus's followers, we are peacemakers joining with God in the work of bringing holistic well-being into the world around us, turning it right side up again. Good news. This actually leads right into another aspect of the good news, which is giving our lives purpose and direction. We're living in a time where a lot of the old ways that meaning was given to our lives are kind of falling apart. Family used to be an organizing, meaning-giving principle, but many people are delaying or choosing not to have a family at all in the first place. Career used to be meaning-making, but increasingly gig work and hustle rather than stable career paths are becoming the norm. Men in particular are having trouble shifting from the old breadwinner-protector-provider model of masculinity to something new. I'm sure you also have seen articles all the time, not just from fringe men's rights activists wondering what a healthy idea of masculinity looks like in this world that we now live in. Many people in our world are, in some sense, adrift, looking for what it is that life is for in the first place. But if Jesus's resurrection, the gospel, tells us that the time has come for humans to repartner with God in bringing holistic peace and well-being to the whole world, then that's a purpose that matters, a purpose with dignity, one that is as small or large as the place we find ourselves in the world. One that doesn't depend on having a spouse or children or a stable job. It just depends on us being open to God's spirit as we exist in our daily lives and in the world that we're a part of. As followers of Jesus, we are to, well, follow Jesus. And the path Jesus walked was one of the cross. That's what separates, I think, what we're called to be as partners with God from some anodyne, be a good person idea. Sacrifice. Jesus has shown us that the way to purpose, a purpose that stands the test of time and is not dependent on the economy or cultural changes, the way to purpose is a way of sacrifice. Is that still good news? (laughs) That there is a secure, time-tested purpose for each one of us, but it will require sacrifice to get there? I think that's what the Bible tells us. It also tells us that we aren't going that way alone. Part of the good news, too, is that Jesus has gone before us showed us the way that he will walk with us and can assure us that our sacrifice will not be meaningless. We may not always see it now. It might not become apparent to us right away. But Paul assures us in 1 Corinthians that those who build for eternity will be rewarded. We will see one day the work that we have done on God's behalf in new light with fresh perspective. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that we should be like Jesus, who because of his willingness to sacrifice— for the sake of God's purposes, is exalted above every other name. Now, he sure didn't seem exalted at the time while hanging on the cross, at least not to most people. But Paul assures us that it is true because of the resurrection, the gospel. And this purpose of bringing holistic peace to the world includes another aspect to it. This peace, this shalom, 
is for all to experience which means the oppression and injustice of the world around us stand in direct opposition to God's purposes in the world. We saw when we went through Revelation, the way that book sets the risen Jesus in direct opposition to the forces of empire, of evil and injustice, that one of the things Jesus's death and resurrection do is show that those powers have been broken and that the time of life and justice has come. Our world is full of injustice, not simply in the form of individual wrongdoing, individual sins, but in capital S sin that creates systems and structures of injustice and oppression, systems and structures that try to convince us that that's just the way things work. It's just the way the world is. But Jesus offers good news, breaking those powers and offering a different way of living, life that is life for all people, not a select few good news. And then finally, Jesus culminates the long story of God making us alive when we were dead. Jesus alive now changes every death we face. It disarms them all. They hold no real lasting power, no matter how much pain they cause us today. First Corinthians 15 says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, God gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus is alive. And because he lives, we live. Through the power and goodness of God, life keeps on escaping, even from death. And that, maybe most of all, is good news. So how do we sum this all up? I'd say that all of these facets of the good news might be put under one banner. Not that sinners get to go to heaven when we die, but that God is at work through Jesus to bring holistic, abundant life to every corner of creation and invites us into that work as well. Good news for those hoping for justice. Good news for those searching for purpose. Good news for those who are lonely. Good news for those yearning for peace Good news for those looking for abundant life. Jesus is on the move, and we all get to join in.